Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Brainstorm Kitchen. We've got a pretty special episode today. I mean, I wasn't there because I was actually just doing work, which is really sad. So that's, you know, whatever. But uh, Quinn got to actually interview Sandor Katz, which is really awesome. Yeah, for those of you who are unaware, uh, Sandor Katz is sort of a very uh, well-renowned author and teacher around fermentation. Um, Let's say somehow the first 10 minutes of the conversation got lost, Um, but it was still a really awesome interview, so we're going to sort of um, edit in to the middle of us talking. But there's still plenty of really cool stuff to listen to. So I got a chance to listen to it. And for example, I learned a lot, like where actually sauerkraut came from. So there's a lot of really cool gems in this podcast. Uh, And uh, one thing we are referencing quite a bit is actually Sandor's relatively recent YouTube series about fermentation in China. So in addition to his awesome books, we'll also link that uh, YouTube series. Uh, Why don't we cover what do you wish people knew? Obviously, the safety issue is one of them. But do you what do you what fact do you think would get people into fermentation more? Well, okay. One thing I would just say is that um, everybody eats and drinks products of fermentation every day. Um, and so you don't have to be thinking about fermentation to, to, to be eating products of fermentation. I mean, coffee is fermented, bread is fermented, cheese is fermented, um, uh, cold mm-hmm. cuts are fermented, all the condiments that have vinegar in them and fermentation um, because the vinegar is fermented. So, you know, everybody is eating and drinking products of fermentation every day. Um, But certain Mm -hmm. um, fermented foods, especially, um, uh, you know, foods that have not been cooked or heat processed after their fermentation, um, offer us um, enormous uh, therapeutic potential simply by the fact that they contain so many bacteria and such broad communities of bacteria because what they can do is to help to um, restore biodiversity in our gut, which can potentially improve digestive processes, potentially improve uh, immune function, um, potentially improve mental health and many other aspects of our well-being. So I think that you know there, there are great benefits and really no risks. Um, and, uh, and these foods are delicious. Um, and then as far as making them, they're just incredibly easy to make. So sometimes people who understand health benefits, you know, they'll go to the farmer's market or the health food store and they'll, uh, you know, find a jar of, uh, living fermented vegetables and then they'll get some like, you know, uh, what you call sticker shock. Like they'll look at the $10 price tag on the pint jar of vegetables and say, that's ridiculous. Um, and, 
you know, to them, I say, well, you don't need what's in the store. It's so simple. Like that pint of vegetables that cost $10 basically takes one pound of vegetables. If you buy organic vegetables, that might cost you $1.50 or $2. And then you chop that up, lightly salt it, um, squeeze it or pound it a little bit. And, um, um, you're in business. You've got, um, um, you've got your, um, uh, um, uh, 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 fermented vegetables. So, um, so it's just like, it's so easy. And I mean, I, I don't really see my role as trying to twist everybody's arm and tell them that they, you know, need to start fermenting. But I would say to, you know, to anybody who is like vaguely interested in these foods, it's, to make it yourself um you you can play around with different kinds of vegetables um uh you know different levels of salt different kinds of seasoning different levels of spiciness different amounts of time you know the more the longer you ferment it the sourer it becomes so some people like to play with a shorter term one a longer term one but you know um um uh, you know it's it's it, it's fun and gives you a lot of variables that you can potentially control to do it yourself um and uh and, and it's not only vegetables you can ferment you can make your own kombucha you can make your own yogurt um you can make your own cheese um but um and and it's not that everybody has to make their own but there's no reason to be intimidated by it fermentation is not rocket science mm -hmm. fermentation is not something that's dangerous um or that requires a lot of special equipment um, you know, people have been fermenting for at least 10,000 years that we know of. And, um, you know, in most places and times, people had much more, you know, kind of basic kitchens than your average listener is going to have. Um, and so, you know, mm -hmm. I, I would just say to anyone who's interested, just like, you know, get a little bit of information about it from my books, from the internet, from wherever, and um, and just like jump into it and just don't be afraid. That That's my major message is there's nothing to be afraid of. Hey, I think what has really clicked in for me recently, I think when things do get more complicated, like when you're making a fermented charcuterie, cured meat in general, maybe cheese and things like that, where, you know, it's not necessarily more dangerous, but it is, it is a, a more complicated process. Like, again, my 80-something-year-old Italian grandmother does that still to this day, and, like, she does not have a very advanced setup, and so many people have been doing this in their homes forever. So, whenever I get worried about certain things, I remember how many people just do that in their lives. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like, my grandmother makes, I'm not sure if she specifically ferments it, but she makes a lot of cured meat, and, you know, that tends to go along with certain types of fermentation, and she makes her own wine, and well, this is this is a story I hear over and over again because you know so many of us have you know grandparents who had grandparents for whom you know this was just a rhythm of life, and um, if we have grandparents who picked up these these um, um, traditions, then you know if they're still around and still doing them, you know now is the time to learn from them. 
Um, because the, the problem is that in so many families, as, um, uh, you know, the, as the next generation gets sort of, you know, more dependent on, you know, shopping at the supermarket and foods and prepared foods, um, you know, just there, there's fewer and fewer people like learning these, um, uh, you know, lessons of, um, you know, of, 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 of food preservation from, um, you know, the, the earlier generations for whom it was really critical. Um, and so, you know, there's a little, we, we have a bit of an issue of, um, um, you know, some of this cultural information being lost. And, um, you know, I think really now is a critical moment um, for, um, you know, preserving this, um, this essential cultural information. And, um, you know, that's a lot of what drives me in, uh, in the work that I'm doing is just, um, you know, seeing the hunger for this information and also in how many cases, in, in how many families, it's just, it's been lost already. So that just, that just really means like we have to, you know, we have to do this now. Uh, the longer we wait, the more of the cultural information is going to be um, lost. Yeah, and I feel like, fermentation kind of sneaks up on you in that way. It's like, ten years ago, if you had said, does my grandmother make fermented foods? I would have said, uh, I don't think so. Like, you know, like, because I know she preserves food. But I'm like, oh wait, she makes wine, she makes vinegar, charcuterie is, in a certain yeah, sense, yeah. fermented. Yeah, yeah sure it is. You specifically, specifically inoculate it. And like, oh, right. <laughs> There's all this stuff. And going back to your um, series in China, I was really surprised because I feel like with Japan and with Korea, they're more outwardly fermentation-centric cuisines, in a sense. And obviously, China has a lot of fermented foods like the um, Dobonjan that are more widely known, but, you know, given that, I think, in North America, China is not as fermentation-focused of a cuisine as, say, Korean cuisine is. When you were there, was it a surprise how often fermentation? Well, you know, you see, I would say I didn't share that impression. I mean, you know, um, uh, uh, think of soy sauce. Soy sauce is fermented. Think of like mm -hmm. the little, uh, what they call black beans. In every Chinese restaurant I've ever been in, you know, you could order like broccoli with black bean sauce. The black beans are little fermented soybeans. Mm. So I was already aware of that. Um, and, mm. uh, and the other thing that, that specifically got me very interested in the fermentation traditions of China is that um, uh, um, every historical reference that I've ever seen to the history of sauerkraut says that the idea of sauerkraut came from China, that the nomadic people of Central Asia encountered um, preserved cabbage, fermented cabbage um, in China, and then they spread the idea uh, westward into Europe. Um, and so, you know, really like sauerkraut comes from China, but although, you know, I, I, I had had, um, a, a occasion to eat lots of kimchi and learn about the Korean, uh, traditions of vegetable fermentation and eat lots of tsukemono and learn about the Japanese traditions of vegetable fermentation. 
I really wasn't finding a lot of information in English or in the U.S. about Chinese vegetable fermentation, um, but I knew it would be there. And when I went there, I was like, I was just totally blown away by, I mean, how many families are doing it themselves, the diversity of styles that you see in uh markets um but there's you know there's 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 nearly infinite variation in you know how people are fermenting vegetables in china and it's very very common and very very widespread and to me anyways maybe i'm making connections that aren't there i mean i think more people are familiar with like double and john and stuff but when you see the production process and when you see certain types of fermentation I almost envision a kind of family tree with fermentation. I'm like, oh, Dobanjan is very similar to miso, and it's also similar to Korean gochujang. So it's like, I almost feel like there are certain Chinese fermentation styles that can almost be seen as very clear sort of ancestors to some of the other Asian product. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, 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 I get, and, you know, I, I'm not absolutely sure, you know, that, that all the influence is in one direction from China to other parts of, of, mm. um, of Asia, but certainly, I mean, everywhere right. in relation to fermentation, you can see these really active cross-cultural fertilization processes where, um, you know, whether it's, you know, travelers, um, you know, sort of witness something and then, you know, sort of try to recreate it or, or at least what they ate influences, uh, you know, their practices at home. Um, so, I mean, everywhere mm -hmm. you see, you know, sort of these, um, um, you know, sort of repeated patterns of, 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 of fermentation. This is kind of maybe a boring techno technical question, and I'm not sure if you asked, but with Dobanjan and the uh, fermented bean component, is that Aspergillus orthoi or a similar fungus? Or well, um, so, so... Um, so yes, I mean, it's certainly Aspergillus uh, uh, fungus is part of it. And just for any of your listeners who, who don't know these words that we're using, let me just say that Dobanjang <laughs> is a, a, a Chinese fermented paste of uh, broad beans like fava beans and chili peppers. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's this mm -hmm. beautiful, salty, sour, spicy, um, um, uh, uh, paste that's used in a lot of the, like, especially Sichuan, um, 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 cooking. Um, and I've been loving, loving, loving using it. Um, uh, um, and when we went to the um, a facility where it's made, by, by the way, I have a small crock, about a gallon-sized batch that I'm making of it right now. Um, you know, just trying to pe basically piecing together how to do it on a small scale from what we saw at the giant uh, uh, factory uh, uh, production facility. But the one part of the production we did not get to see is growing the fungus on the beans, although I think they didn't use a starter. Um, but 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 I mean I know from my reading that all those kinds of sort of Asian fungal starters involve um, Aspergillus molds, although not necessarily exclusively Aspergillus molds. 
So, I mean, it's basically only in the in, with with Pasteur's work in the late 19th century that sort of we developed the methodologies to isolate singular organisms. So, like you know, nowadays you could buy you could look on the internet, you could buy koji starter that would be spores of Aspergillus oryzae that you could grow on different kinds of grains or or beans, um, but. Uh, um, you know, the idea that you could get spores of just a singular organism is really a 20th century idea. And prior to that, all fermentation everywhere, um, and, and even today, most fermentation processes in most places involve broader communities of organisms rather than pure isolated cultures. So um, uh, in a lot mm -hmm. of the commercial Japanese production these days, they're using pure cultures. But in China, even in this giant factory, they were not using starter cultures. Um, and so they just had a room where they grow the fungus. And of course, when you have a space that you use repeatedly to grow the same organisms, they will come to dominate that environment. Um, so when mm -hmm. I tried making my doubanjang, I, um, uh, I I flash cooked my fava beans. I peeled the 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 skins off of them, um, sprinkled them with a little bit of um, uh, 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 wheat flour, and then I just put them in my little incubation chamber that I make koji in all the time, which is the Japanese starter for making miso and sake that's made using a pure culture starter. So I just put it in the same environment. I didn't introduce the starter, but just by virtue of it being in that environment, the same fungus. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I've dabbled with um, making koji products before, and, um, I, and every time I do need to uh, redo a starter just because I don't have a, um, a dedicated incubator, I sort of build one as needed, but I am interested in basically the next time I make koji, I'm going to reserve some of the rice or whatever grain it is, and I'm going to try and basically keep a small sample of it alive um, yeah. in the next batch. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, we, we actually have a word in the English language to describe this, which is a vivid word that I love. It's backslopping. So when you take yes, a when you take a little bit of the old batch <laughs> and put it in the new batch, in order to get um, you know the organisms uh, uh, that are in the original batch growing in the next batch, you know we, we call that. Well, I was just going to say that some other foods that are made using backslopping would be like yogurt, um, where um, mm -hmm. um, you never eat all the yogurt. You want to save a little bit of the yogurt because that's your starter to add to milk to make new yogurt. Uh, Anybody? Uh, anybody? Uh, 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 I'm, uh, I'm close <laughs> to you. <laughs> Me <yogurt>. too. <laughs> um, but if you want to perpetuate the yogurt, you need to save a little bit. And same with a sourdough. You would never mm -hmm. bake bread with all of your sourdough. You always want to save a little bit of it and mix it with more flour and water in order to perpetuate the, you know, the 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 yeast and bacteria community that that is the sourdough. Mm -hmm. And I think people really underestimate that because uh, despite my personal troubles uh, with sourdough starters i have a yogurt culture that i've had going for like 
two years. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it's, never... it's very cool to keep it going. Um, um, it's very it's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. I have one that I've kept going for twenty years. Um, and I've met people yeah. who have, you know, these family heirloom sourdoughs that, you know, they were passed down from their grandmothers who were pa- who who were passed them from their grandmothers. So, um, um, you know, once you have mm-hmm. these things going, you know, if you can take care of them, they can keep going potentially forever. Uh, I'm, so what I was curious about, uh, going back to koji, because I think koji uh, fermentation in particular is having a bit of a moment in the culinary world, um, for good reason, I think, because it does make miso and soy sauce and sake and all these really sort of delicious things. Um, what, because, uh, uh, one person we've had on the show before, uh, Jeremy Umansky, he has done a lot of work, sort of, let's say, uh, fermenting non-standard things with koji. So I'm curious, what's your general opinion of koji having this moment and sort of really pushing the limits of what something can ferment? Well, I mean, I think it's so exciting that there's so much um, experimentation going on. And, um, you know, one of one of the things I think about is that, you know, really nobody has invented any new fermented foods in centuries, as far as I can tell. But what we're seeing a lot of right now that's incredibly exciting is um, people taking traditional processes that have been used generally for thousands of years in some part of the world and then just applying them to completely different kinds of ingredients. So for koji, which has been used for thousands of years to make sake, to make soy sauce, to make miso, to make fish sauce, mm-hmm. um, and then, uh, um, you know, to have... Um, 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 you know, uh, like a, uh, like a clever, um, chef who's excited to experiment and starts like putting it in the cure for, for, for meats. Um, it, I mean, to me, it's just, it's just so great e- even to use it for different kinds of beans. When I was in Japan last year, um, you know, somebody, somebody said to me, you know, Miso has been such an important part of the Japanese um, culinary tradition, but we really only do it with soybeans. And it took it took people from outside of Japan to sort of show us how um, um, how widely this process could be applied, and that you could make miso out of you know any kind of bean, and even their chefs are doing it beyond beans. You know, um, David Chang and Momofuko in New York is making miso out of pistachios and. Mm-hmm. And nuts and and walnuts and other kinds of nuts. So, um, I mean, personally, I feel like it's great um, uh, uh, that that we're seeing so much kind of um, um, you know cross pollination and experimentation. And I think you know some of the results that people are having are are, are truly exciting. Uh, I have to say, for me personally, um, I made a few different types of misos and. Uh, well, I made a hazelnut miso that turned out fantastic, and I also basically made a lamb prosciutto with a koji on it, and, like, I did not think that it was going to work, 
given the conditions of my house, but it came out perfect. Great. I love hearing that. So it's really interesting how these sort of combining these techniques can almost in a way make it easier. I guess my question is, do you hope that a lot of people will go beyond the basic pickles and try these more advanced things? Or are you sort of happy with them, you know, making kimchi and stuff and then having just a good appreciation for the other types of fermentation? Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I have no, I, I, I mean, I have no um, desire to try to tell people that they need to be getting involved in elaborate fermentation processes. Um, I, you know, I, I like to, I mean, personally, I love to, to like reverse engineer these things and, you know, figure out how to make things. And uh, it's been fun for me to document that, to make that information available to people who are interested. But um, I certainly don't want to, um, you know, make anybody feel that, like, they have to make their own miso. Um, you know, and I, I, I really, I, generally, if I, when I teach, uh, when I do short presentations, I like to show people how to make sauerkraut. Because really, like, in, you know, in 10 or 15 minutes, I can show people how to make sauerkraut and give them tools that they can just go home and do something really easy. They don't need to have any special environment, doesn't require any special ingredients or starter cultures. It just takes a few vegetables in a jar um, and some salt and, and that's it. And I love to show people how, how simple fermentation can be. And, I and then I also like to provide the, the information so if people wanna go deeper with it, they can, but I'm certainly not invested in trying to convince people that they need to make their own miso or um, um, you know, make their own um, um, cheese or, 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 or whatever. Um, I mean, I, th I think it can be very empowering to do that. Um, um, and, 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 and certainly I am always encouraging people to try to, you know, break out of this role of consumer with relation to food and, um, you know, find ways to um, also be a producer of food, even if it's just making one thing, you know, making yogurt and sharing it with some friends, making sauerkraut. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, you can really just make one thing and make it well and enjoy it and share it. And, and that's a great thing. I don't think everybody has to make everything for themselves. And another, and another development is that, you know, there are more and more, um, you know, small local and regional business enterprises who are making high quality fermented products because there's growing interest in it. And, um, and I think it's great to, you know, to support these, um, you know, local uh, uh, food enterprises. So, um, so I definitely don't think it's a sense like everybody to make everything. And, and I recognize that most people want to keep it simple. Um, going back to your trip to China, which <laughs> the uh, discussion of which has somewhat been lost to the ether. Um, again, obviously you did obviously a lot of research and planning before you went there, but was there a meal or a particular product that did really surprise you, either in that it existed or at least how good it was? 
compared to other versions you've had? Well, I mean, one thing that we ate a lot of in this uh, 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 small village in Guizhou um, was uh, a preserved fish. And it was basically like a, a freshwater carp um, that was preserved for several months with a sort of a, 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 a seasoned rice mixture. So it was like fermented in a bed of seasoned rice. And, um, and, and when we were in the village, like basically, um, you know, every meal, um, you know, they, they, they brought that out. It was clearly like a staple food in the diet in the village. Um, and, um, you know, it was just really, really delicious. Um, and, um, and every family's version was like a little bit different in the seasoning. Some of them were fiery hot. Some of them were, were really mild. Some of them were saltier, some less so, but I, I love when I get to sort of sample a food in variation like that and get to, you know, really experience that it's, you know, there's not just one recipe or way that it's done. And, uh, you know, most of these common foods, you know, end up, um, you know, being family recipes that are, you know, just always a little bit different. Um, so, um, so, so that preserved fish was, was, was one very interesting thing. And then, you know, by the way, a few weeks later, when I traveled to Japan, um, I ate fermented sushi. And this is something that, I, that I've read about and thought a lot about, um, you know, that, you know, because the, the, the sushi that's gone global, the sushi that you can buy anywhere in the U.S. right now, like, what is that without a refrigerator? It, like, it can't exist without a refrigerator. It's like fresh fish that, that has to be kept cold. Um, you know, for, you know, me living in the middle of Tennessee, like definitely like if, you know, if we were trying to make sushi out of fish that hadn't been refrigerated, it would be disgusting. Um, um, but you know, obviously refrigeration hasn't been around for that long. So it turns out that the traditional sushi is, a fish fermented in a bed of rice. And when I was in Japan, I got to try several different variations on that. Um, and, um, and they were all of them were very delicious. They were different based on what kind of fish and how long the fermentation was and, 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 and other factors. Um, but, um, you know, that's something that's very interesting to me. Um, uh, uh, you know, different concepts of how to ferment fish and, 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 and meat. Um, so that's something that I saw um, um, uh, a good bit of that was a little bit surprising. Huh. Yeah, actually, that idea of fermented sushi the only time I've, I'd heard of that concept is when it's fusion, when you're taking other types of fermented fish and uh, making them into sushi. So the fact that there is a traditional sort of rice-based fermented sushi, yeah, that's... Can you just make videos every week about this stuff? Um, well, I mean, I would love to in the future. I, you know, I, so I need to, I need to learn more. Like I, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, you know, be putting out incomplete information about how to do these things. Um, so one right, of the right, China right. videos yes. really documents pretty, um, thoroughly, I would say, um, you know, the method that we saw in this little village in China, um, for, um, uh, um, on you, uh, fermented fish, um, and um, and I've heard from I, I've heard from several people who have actually done it based on that recipe and had pleasing results. Um, 
so 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 that's a start. But yes, I would certainly love to do more documentation of some of the different styles of fermenting sushi. But like the, you know the 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 under the the underlying so the 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 fact that underlies uh, um, all of this fermentation of fish in rice. The rice is significant because the limitation of using fermentation as a strategy for preserving meat or fish is that the, 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 the fermentation byproducts that preserve food, the acids or potentially alcohol, are all um, uh, metabolized from carbohydrates. And carbohydrates are the mm. nutrient that's really um, um, barely present at all in fish and meat. So they've got lots of protein, lots of uh, uh, fat in certain cases, but but only a negligible uh, carbohydrate content. And so the rice becomes the carbohydrate that is, you know, the fermentation of the rice carbohydrates produce the acids that enable the fish to be effectively preserved. So uh, I, I would almost say, essentially, yeah, I'm sure there is plenty of bacterial activity happening in the meat itself, but it's almost as if the fermented rice is basically like a solid vinegar-like substance that is almost more pickling the fish. Yeah, so, well, okay. In, in, I mean, so I would say that these, you know, fermenting the fish with, with rice is a way of pickling the fish, but, but, but also, mm -hmm. you know, there are other methods of pickling fish where you just add vinegar. Uh, so, you know, pickling is anything where you're preserving food in an acidic medium, and you can either do that by through fermentation um, um, and acid, which is how the, you know, what we saw in China, the fermented sushi of um, um, uh, uh, Japan is done, um, um, you know, or you can add vinegar, which is how, let's say, most contemporary pickled herring is, is done. Um, and, um, and same with vegetables. Like, you know, you go to the supermarket in the U.S. and look in the pickle aisle, and mostly you're going to find vegetables with vinegar poured over them or a hot vinegar solution. Uh, but I would say that, like, the, the, the pickles that I grew up with in New York City that, that really were my first introduction to fermentation, what we call sour pickles in New York, what outside of New York they called kosher dills, um, you know, there, there's no vinegar in that. They're basically cucumbers in a saltwater brine solution with garlic and dill. And then the, the acid that preserves the cucumber is generated by fermentation by lactic acid bacteria. And that acid is lactic acid as opposed to the supermarket vinegar pickles, which are using acid. And if you do a side-by-side -side taste test, you'll recognize that they have an extremely different flavor. So, um, um, you know, they're both acids, but they're different acids derived in different ways. Yeah, huh. I, I'm, now I'm curious. Okay, I want to rewatch that uh, fermented fish video and, and try something like that. Or I don't know. If... <laughs> nice. And then, of course, fish sauce is a little bit different because you're not preserving the fish. Like you're, the, fish is, the fish is decomposing. So, you know, you just put whole fish with their intestines, you know, full of bacteria and lots of salt, generally about 20% salt, and you don't add any water. And then that liquid is just basically 
decomposed fish uh, um, um, tissue. Um, but fish sauce, yeah. fish sauce is funky and delicious. I know. I've grown to appreciate just like a very average store-bought brand of fish sauce. So now I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta figure out how practically to actually do this without, you know, stinking up the whole house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might, uh, especially yeah. now that it's summer, you might want to do it uh, if you have like a garage or an outbuilding or something like that. You might want to do it outside. I was worried about animals. Mm. We, get, we get raccoons sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, like, sure. No, he, uh, he, a, jar, a, jar, a jar of fish sauce must be just a giant beacon to every raccoon uh, in the... Uh, <laughs> um, okay, let's do one more question. Right. Um, in your own playing around, have you ever tried something more experimental? And do you have any highlights of something that really worked, or some highlights of something that went very wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm constantly experimenting, and um, you know, I mean, I'm happy to say most of my experiments are um, uh, 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 go pretty well. Um, uh, la last year, I had an opportunity to ferment something at a large scale that I had never had access to a large amount of before, and that is ramps, which are like the the the, the wild alliums that you can find in forests uh, um, around the eastern U.S. And um, I've always known where there were a few little stands of ramps, and I'd always get a few handfuls and, you know, make like an omelet or something like that with them. But um, last year, uh, a, a Cherokee friend of mine who lives in North Carolina showed up at my house with like buckets and buckets filled with ramps. And he gave me like 20 pounds of ramps, and I made ramp kraut. It was just ramps and salt. And I fermented it for probably about three weeks in uh, warm spring weather. And, um, oh, my God, that was so, so delicious. Um, and then, sadly, this year I was not, I was not able to come up with a, with a good supply of ramps. So that's a success story. Um, and let me tell you, a, a, like, a failure story. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things, before I went to China, one of the things that I was um, uh, experimenting a lot with was fermenting tofu. And a lot of the, there's a lot of different ways that people ferment tofu, but, but many of the styles begin with tofu with a, like a white hairy mold on it. In Chinese, they call it mao tofu, moldy tofu. Um, and, uh, um, and so I was, you know, I had read some accounts in the literature. I was trying it. I was, uh, I didn't have rice straw to make a bed of, which is the traditional bed for this process. So I was using wheat straw, which must've been a little bit different, but I kept on getting these bright colored molds, like red and orange molds. And, um, you know, I've, I've always encouraged people if they get have surface growth on their sauerkraut to not freak out about it, just peel it off. But I also know that bright, certain bright colored molds can be extremely, extremely toxic. So when I did try growing this tofu mold and I was looking for a white hairy mold and instead I got bright red and bright orange molds, I just threw those in the compost. I would just never think about eating anything with a bright colored mold. And, um, you know, I want to encourage your listeners to you know, to be discerning and trust your senses. And, um, 
and and like take one little piece of information, which is like you do not want to eat foods with bright colored molds on them. Um, you, yeah. you definitely want to throw them away, even though there are wonderful there are wonderful foods made with white molds and with blue molds and green molds. Um, you know, when you get into the bright color molds, just don't even think of eating it. Throw it away. Um, I mean, I, I could really go on and on about fermentation failures I've had through the years, you know, maggots crawling out of uh, um, 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 uh, crocks of sauerkraut that had not been adequately protected and flies. Um, but, um, but, you know, I don't want to scare people with all the, the things that can go wrong. The things that can go wrong will be abundantly, will be abundantly visible to you, and generally things are going to work out fine. Yes. <laughs> Either... It's going to be very obvious, or the failure is, it just doesn't taste good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we can sort of wrap up there. I do have to tell you about one discovery, or two discoveries, I think I made. And just so I can implant them uh, into your head. Um, are you, I guess this is a good question, are you aware of any... Um, fermentation that uses smoked vegetables? Um, no, I, 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 I mean, I've, I, I can't say that I can specifically think of any uh, ferments that use smoked vegetables, but what I can say is that I have made great sauerkraut using smoked salts. I've also had great... Oh, mm -hmm. actually, no, I say that, and then I realize that um, 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 I've had... Um, I've had wonderful sauerkraut with smoked peppers, also. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I, I've, I've used a few um, smoked water actually as the brine, and it works really well. Wow, cool. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Is yeah. I mean, I, I I like to really encourage people to to be experimental. Like you know, with sauerkraut, the basics are. Then you chop up vegetables, salt them, uh, season them as you like, squeeze them or pound them a little bit to get them juicy and stuff them in a jar. But, you know, you could do that with, I mean, in China, I saw people drying vegetables in the sun to make a different texture in the fermented vegetables. Smoking mm. them is a great idea that would give them a very different kind of a flavor. Um you know, there's lots of ways that you can manipulate the, the various ingredients, like within that sort of generic process. And, um, you know, smoking is such a delicious, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, way to enhance uh, uh, flavors. I think that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. uh, one more thing I've uh, stumbled upon. Again, just, okay, I'm sure you're uh, aware of this sort of thing. But did you know that you can actually get an active culture from a piece of Parmigiana Reggiana? Well, sure. I mean, it, ma it makes sense to me that any, you know, I mean, I mean, any fermented food that hasn't been heat processed is still going to have the organisms that produced it that are uh, as part of them. And I know that Parmesan cheese is aged for a long time. Um, and, um, uh, you know, is very biologically active. So um, it doesn't surprise me at all. And there's, I think, a lot, a lot of cheeses you can make and and derive the cultures from cheeses of those types. Mm -hmm. I actually made a a Parmigiano cultured butter, and I, it's fantastic. I, I, I have a, I have a, I have a great um cheese making book that I could recommend. 
Um, it's called um, uh, The Art of Natural Cheese Making. And it's by David Asher, A-S-H-E-R. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it basically is a cheese making book uh, that's all about like not relying on pure culture starters. So the starters all come from um, either yogurt or kefir or other pieces of cheese. Yeah, I'll have to, um, can you say that title one more time? It's called The Art of Natural Cheese Making. Okay. Yeah, I might have to get that. I've actually done some experimenting with that myself. Um, making actually cultured ricottas. So I make the ricotta, which as I'm sure you know is a um, high temperature process. And then I cool it down. And then I soak the ricotta curds in various um, fermentation uh, brines. Like a, oh. a fermented lemon, a fermented lemon brine. Wow. Okay. I love. I love that. That what a, what a, what a great idea. And it's so weird. Even with like a fermented lemon ricotta, eventually it kind of tastes like parmesan. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, yeah. I'm so I'm so glad that you're um, inspired to experiment so much and to. Um, um, you know, share the, the 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 excitement and rewards of fermentation with people listening to your podcast, and um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been, and um, yeah, and you, I man. appreciate so much that um, you reached out to me, and it's been a pleasure um, uh, getting to talk to you. Well, that was our interview with Sandor Katz. Uh, we'll definitely need to get him on the podcast again uh it was I, I really really enjoyed it and um also <clears throat> this is maybe a good time to mention that um if you did enjoy the podcast please consider leaving us a review on itunes this really helps as well as um checking out our patreon if you're interested in in donating and helping support the channel that way and of course definitely definitely check out uh sandor Katz's youtube series that quinn mentioned at the beginning yeah see ya Check out Sandor's links, uh, check out the Patreon, uh, wherever you listen, feel free to give us some comments and feedback, and, uh, if you like it, please rate and share it. Uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>